Amen. And if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. And uh, turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be picking it up here this morning. We're in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel 7 is sort of, we probably call it like a transition chapter, right? We're, we're moving out of the more narrative section. Uh, the first six chapters really just kind of follow time and follow the life of Daniel in Babylon. And now we're into more of what we would call like the apocalyptic uh, section of Daniel. And I think the best way to do this is if we're just going to jump right in. And, uh, and so I'd invite you now to stand with me as we look together to God and His Word to us this morning. This is Daniel uh, chapter 7. We're going to start there in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, uh, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I'll just confess to you that that Daniel 7 has given me fits. (laughs) As I read it this week, and I want to understand it and I want to make sense of it and there's there's these weird pictures in here Lord I I pray that you would help us not to get lost in that this morning I pray that you would speak with great clarity that you would speak with great power through a completely um, weak even terrified servant here this morning yeah I pray that you wouldn't let my stammering tongue stand in between you and your people today but that you would give us your word We want it. We need it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to ask uh, my family, all right, so um, like if you were to ask Laurie and you can ask any of my kids, they will tell you um, that there is one thing uh, that I do 
that I just really do not like. I mean, that's like, they, 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 will, they will know, if you were to ask them, hey, what is, what is he really not like? They would know and they would answer you. They would tell you right out of the gate, he, my dad uh, does not like scary movies, all right? Um, like, you, if you ask them after the service, they will confirm and they will tell you that their dad does not like scary movies. I do not like to be scared. Like, I, it, every once in a while, one of the kids, they'll jump out from a corner and scare me, and I fake it pretty good, but I, like, have to go and sit down for a bit, right? I just don't like being scared. I, I don't like that feeling. Some people love that, and that's like, like that's whatever, man. You, you, you do, you, I'm just fundamentally not with you in that, right? And I'm a classic, like, unapologetic scary cat, scaredy cat, right? Um, some people, here, here's how, and here's how you know. A while back, a lot of you told me, this was over the course of several months, that I needed to watch a show called Stranger Things. Now, you're going to laugh because you're like, that's not a scary show. And I've heard that, okay? Like, so just save me that argument. And here's what I'll tell you. Laurie can confirm this for you. I made it maybe 37 seconds into that series, all right? Because the opening scene of that first episode was like a creepy hallway with some blinking lights and like ominous sounds in the background. I was, nope, I'm out. Like right out of the gate, I'm not doing it. And like I know, and I've seen, I this past Halloween, y'all, there were like little kids and middle schoolers dressed up as the characters from Stranger Things. And I'm like, they evidently can handle it. And I just can't. And you know what? I don't care. All right. I don't, I'm, I'm old enough at this point that you're not going to intimidate me with your middle schooler dressed up as whatever from Stranger Things. Anyway, what I really enjoy though, all right, I, I do love movies and what I really enjoy are stories of people overcoming obstacles. Those are the types of movies I like. So that means, if you want to know it, that means I'm like a sucker for a good romantic comedy, man, because like the whole thing is predicated on some struggle they have to overcome in order to find one another. It's beautiful, whatever. Um, and I'm a crier, so it's real sad, right? Like, Laurie's like laughing, and I'm just, <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, I can, t- I hear, I, I'm, this is going way too long, sorry. I can take a little suspense in my life because I like stories of endurance and survival. Like, I don't, I really don't need like big explosions and stuff. Uh, I, I just need some struggle that the protagonist has to work through, uh, some tension that has to be overcome, and, and I'm here for it. Well, for as long as I can remember, and I don't know if this is true just in my lifetime, but people have been making stories, making movies about the end of the world, right? It's like they ran out of like, you can't just have a bad guy now. Like that guy's got to want to destroy half of all creation or whatever, or wipe out entire planets. It seems like Star Wars really got into that at some point. Let's just blow up planets as if that's a cool thing to do, whatever. And, but I, it's just like, this has always been there. And I think, here's why I think it is. I, I think it's because we are hardwired, like in, in our DNA, like in, our, in the like fabric of our being, we're hardwired to think about this idea of the end of the world. Like we, we really are. It's, it's one of those human longings that we all share. And, and we've said it here a number of times. If you're newer to Rivercrest, maybe you haven't heard this, but we, we believe, or I believe, that there are four basic questions that every sem- single human being Will ask, and I actually think these are gateways to a thousand conversations you can have with just about anybody. But I think there's four questions that just about everybody asks, and it's how did it all start? What went wrong? <laughs> Who's going to fix it? And the last one is how does it all end? 
I think we're fascinated with these and we're drawn to these. These are these universal questions that we all wrestle with. And the last one is the one that's fueled an entire subcategory of, of stories and movies that we might call apocalyptic. That's what it means, like the end of creation with people. And a lot of people imagine it's aliens or robots or just some like unexplained phenomenon that results in the end of the world as we, as we know it. And when we come to the Bible, right, so let's, let's, let's bring it back here. Uh, we, what we find is that it doesn't run from this idea. The Bible is not afraid to talk about this. God doesn't hide this reality from us. But he comes and he actually meets us here in, here in Daniel and in other places. He comes and meets us with it. And he gives us, what he does is he gives us a framework uh, through which we're meant to see all of existence. Like this is what he does in scripture. He gives us this framework to see how, to, for us to understand all of creation, all of human existence. It's sort of like the glasses to help us see a little more clearly. It's the lens through which we look through to see time and history and meaning and purpose and, and really through which we see all of life. And so, and so we see it through, at least here, we see it through, through the biblical lens of creation, fall, redemption, and, and consummation. And it's that last one, it's this consummation that how does it all end? flowing out of those first three questions that the second half of the book of Daniel is dealing with. And God's not just interested in Daniel knowing the facts of the coming history of the world. That's not God's primary objective here. He's not giving Daniel dates and times, but, he, but what he wants is for Daniel. This is what God wants for Daniel, and I, I would argue this is what he wants for us in preserving this book, is he wants us, he wants Daniel and all of his people to know something more of his great and glorious purpose for his creation. And what these first eight verses tell us, and they're weird, right? Can we agree the first eight? Can you, I, just, I need you to agree with me that the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 7 are weird, all right? Like straight up weird. It's like the weirdest graphic novel ever just written out. Like I have, I, genuinely I can tell you, Dan, uh, Andrew can affirm this, my family can affirm this. I came home from work Monday and was just like, I don't know. I don't know. Horns, animals, a little horn. That's weird, man. Like a little horn that plucked up three other horns. I didn't even know what the horns were and you've already got one getting rid of three of them. Like what are we doing? So anyway, I'm, if, if, you, if I seem like I'm a little off, I'm way off. Like Daniel 7 just, just knocked me out this week. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to hold it together here in front of you. Um, here's what they tell us with all these strange images and monsters, all these weird beasts coming out of the sea. What God is making clear, I want you to hear this. I'm 100% convinced of this after going through this countless hours this week. Here's what God is making clear, is that the sadness, the brokenness, and the darkness of this world are real. That's what he's showing us. They are real. So we see here in these opening verses, we see this imagery. And again, it's kind of like this, it's like a graphic novel, like a weird comic book. We see all this, all this chaos of the present age. And it begins with a dream, right? Like Daniel is having a dream. He's having these visions of his head as he lay in his bed. By the way, that is the most Dr. Seuss sounding line in the entire Bible right there, right? He was having visions as he said, as he laid in his bed, and then there was green eggs and ham or whatever. Um, it's, just, it's just the weirdest, the whole thing just messes with me. If somebody listens to this podcast 
five years from now, anybody, no way there's anybody left in that church, by the way. So anyway, uh, please stick with us for a bit here. He's having this vision, and the point of it all seems to be that it's happening. He's having this vision just on an ordinary night. Like, he didn't plan this out. It's not like Daniel went up to the hill to try and have a moment with God. There's none of that. He's just trying to go to sleep. Our boy's just tired and trying to go to sleep, and he has this vision. And in verse 2, he describes it. Here's what he says. He says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. And all of this, I mean, if this is your dream, this is a pretty bad dream. This is terrifying. In Hebrew, like, so in Hebrew literature, the sea is consistently used as an image of, of chaos. Like it's a picture of, the sea is a picture of disorder. They didn't do swim lessons with every toddler or three-year-old, right? Like they didn't go into the water. Do you know why? Do you know what they would think of us going to the beach for vacation? They'd be like, do they realize everything in there is trying to eat them? Like everything, and not to scare your kids, but that's legit. And if you go, if you go, if you go to the beach in South Carolina, you can't see three inches under the water. Go to Clearwater, see all the fish swimming around, and then you'll be like, nope, never happening again. So the sea is terrifying. It's a scary place. And the winds, all right, so here's the other thing. Not only are they on the sea where it's dangerous, the winds are blowing out of control. That's what it means, the four winds blowing from all directions. That's basically this massive tornado that's swirling over the face of an already chaotic and terrifying place. That's the setting of the dream. That's not even the, the, the fabric of the dream. That's just the setting of the dream. Just the scariest environment imaginable. And these beasts come out of the water, right? They're all different. And people spend a ton of time trying to figure out who the beasts are. I've got like six commentaries. We were joking last night. We were at dinner. Like I bought a commentary on Monday this week because I need some more help, right? We've got commentary after commentary where you can listen to people trying to figure out who the beasts are. That's like the main purpose of this. They try and identify some person, whether this king, this kingdom, this, this whatever they love to try and figure out who they are. And, and they, all the animals are sort of apex predators, right? They're the kings of their environment. And what I'm going to tell you is that it's not our purpose here to try and identify the kings who arise out of the earth. In keeping with the four winds, by the way, the four winds represents all winds. I'm inclined to see the four beasts as representative of all human kingdoms. And the picture that leaves us with is is this reality that, that contrary to the prevailing idea of human progress, what we actually see in the world is a regression of humanity. One author makes a statement, he says, the vision declares that our world is being run by a succession of fearsome monsters that will go from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the one before. And we've seen this. And we've seen how... how how what first appeared to be progress and development and, and often how it often degenerates and ultimately leaves us worse off than before. All, all this talk about this present situation in Ukraine, and if you've been keeping track of that, they, there's, there's been bombs in Odessa. So if, if you, 
I know I, when this all first started, I told you about my time in Ukraine. That's where I was. And so for the first time this week, they're blowing up stuff and buildings that I probably walked through and spent time around. And so it's, it's kind of hard to stomach that. And so I'm, I'm not politically oriented. That's not really my, my game. But I'm telling you right now, there, there are people who are dying who didn't do anything but wake up that morning. They're living out the dream that Daniel had in his bed, right? And so one of the things that you've kept hearing since day one is this threat of nuclear war. Well, well, the reason the nuclear bomb was originally developed was to be a war stopper. That was why it was the, it was the original Moab, right? Like, we're going to drop this thing and it'll just be game over. And, and I think you could, you could make the argument that it, it did do that. Now, it's a terrible, terrible thing, but it was developed as the ultimate answer to human warfare. And what it's now become is it's become the hurdle that stops us from ending warfare. Isn't that crazy that this thing that was meant to be an answer has become our greatest problem? We see this so often in the world. You might think of something like Facebook, which on the surface seems like a helpful tool to connect people to one another, but often results in, and and I think studies are going to be fascinating on this going forward, but ultimately results in people being more estranged, being less connected, and has even been shown over and over to result in more loneliness than in connectivity. A lot of times things that we think are good, developments that we think are are good, actually end up being being very dangerous. It's the same in world governments. Like we've certainly seen this in our world. Looking at this chapter, Dale Ralph Davis said, it's as if the writer invites us to incorporate the doctrine of total depravity into our politics. That what we see over and over again is just how deep we're willing to go into sin. It's just this powerful downward spiral. It's all, and, and sadly, and, not, and here, here, let's do this. Let's not pick, uh, I think I mentioned politicians last week. Let's not pick on them every week. We, we also see this in much of what we call the church today. We see this same. So let, let's, let's not get too busy looking at the specks in others' eyes when we got logs in our own. Like we continue to, we see this over and over and over again, we continue to prop up charismatic men as the heroes in our stories. We, we buy their books, we podcast their sermons, we attend their conferences, only discover later that, that their outward gifting and thirst for control far outweighed their internal character and heart for the things of God. And so we're good at making, we're good at mistaking degeneration for renewal. And Daniel 7 gives us this caution as we see these beasts, whether it's the majesty and grandeur of the lion or the strength and ferocity of the bear or the speed and swiftness of the leopard, all these outwardly impressive and often intimidating things they bring to the table, all the great vision and leadership and and the promises that they make, they're all just leading us down the path of greater darkness and despair. Like, like think about this, the fact that they keep replacing one another. Each one of them at some point would have been, would have been the world's answer to the world's problems. And we've got a new king here on a, on a new throne and he's going to make it all things new. Does this not sound like our political discourse today? The problem is that their foundations are shaky You see, this is the heart of the vision. It's the picture for us that's declaring the reality of the present age of the fall, this present age of brokenness, that it will always be this way until all things are made new. And in that way, it should cause us to wonder, like it genuinely should, and this is the question I would ask the the bigwig theologians, this should cause us to wonder if the vision of the beast is really even the point of the story. 
Look at verse 9 with me. We'll read another little section here. Look at verse 9. It says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Here's 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the vision, in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One of the temptations that I have, um, one, our, one of the temptations that I can fall into is that I just can get myself trapped in the space of what is. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I'll try and explain. I, like, I see the problem. I see the struggle. I see all the beasts. They occupy my mind. And I get bogged down in the nightmare. I get stuck in the space we see in verses 1 through 8. Maybe that's why I love the way verse 9 just comes out of nowhere, right? I love how abrupt this shift is. And the first thing we notice is a transition from chaos to order, from conflict to peace, from madness to sanity. Instead of kingdoms rising and falling and devouring one another, we get a vision of the ancient of days. Sinclair Ferguson makes the observation that human kingdoms are always caught up in feverish activity, military or diplomatic, but the ancient of days was seated. That's how we find the image of the Lord in glory. He's not shaken. He's not staggered. He's not surprised. He's there in control. Like, look at what it says in verse 11. This is an image we're meant to receive and hold on to. Daniel says this. He says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So, so, the, so the little horn's still running his mouth. All right. It's still boasting. I don't know what sort of image pops in your mind when I say the little horn is still boasting. I, I've grown to see it as like little trumpets on top of this monster's head. I don't know if that's right or not. All right. But the little horn is still chirping away. That, that's sort of... He's still boasting, right? right? Like that, that's still sort of the way of darkness. It's always barking, always chirping, right? Like here's what sin is a bully. That's what sin is. But look at the second half of verse 11. It's so abrupt that it catches you. This little horn is just there and he's popping off still and he says this, and as I looked, the beast was killed. <laughs> After all of that, and I looked, and the beast was killed. And his body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. It's, this, it's like the most anticlimactic 
little story right there. It's, it's like, this would be like Luke Skywalker just sort of flying off at the end of Star Wars and then being like, they won. Like you don't see the fight, you don't see the Death Star blow up, Star, you know, Darth Vader flying through the air or whatever. You don't see any of that. You just see the little X-Wing flying off and it's like, the end. The good guys won. I mean, that's like how this is right here. The beast was killed. But, but I think it's intentional again. The brevity of the report is meant to illustrate how little power the little horn ever really had. And so it's not even in a fight. Like the ancient of days doesn't go to war. There's no challenge. It's just over. And so again, what we've said since week one, when we jumped into this book, what we've said is that this book isn't about Daniel. This book isn't about the end of the world. It's not about prophecy. It's not about foreign kingdoms. And it's, and it's not even about these visions. All those things are in there. They're, they're there. All those things are real. But to focus on any one of them is to miss the forest because of one tree. Because what Daniel is about, what the book of Daniel is about, is God. It's about giving the people of God a true picture of who our God is. And this is who our God is, okay? He's a God who makes himself known. Like he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't, it, he, he doesn't need to do that. He wants to do that. He wants us to know him for who he really is. And when we begin to live with that true vision of our God, that true vision of our creator, that true vision of the ancient of days, the one who sits on an everlasting throne, the one who rules and reigns in true majesty and glory as the one who is in control. The one, here's what Ephesians 1.11 says. The one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? When we see him in the splendor of his glory, just, like, just look at the throne. It's there in verse 9. Like his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So like this isn't helpless old grandfather God up in the sky just hoping people will come and visit him. Now the fire points to Yahweh's presence. It always does in the Old Testament. You see fire, you start looking for the Lord. And fire is nothing if not dynamic, right? Fire is active. Fire changes things. Most agree that the representation here, uh, that the fire represents the fury of God's judgment. It's a purifying fire. It's not chaos. It's not burning out of control, but it's a controlled burn, right? A purifying fire. Remember the Psalms remind us. We see it in, in numerous Psalms. I'll give you two. Psalm 89 and Psalm 97. And we're reminded over and over again that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And we see that here. It's not chaos with God. Chaos is the realm of the enemy. The sea and the darkness and the world, these are chaotic things. We experience that in our life. Some of us are experiencing that in new and exciting ways every single day. These are chaotic things. The beasts that come out of it are chaotic. But God, God sits above all that. He sits above that. He's not scrambling. Like God's not flustered. He's not confused. Look at the end of verse 10. As the just judge sat in judgment and the books were open. God's not flying by the seat of his pants. He's not, he's not just freewheeling this thing. He's got it in the books. 
See, our God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So this is meant to bring comfort in the chaos. It's this picture of what Jesus would later proclaim in John 16, that in this world you will have tribulation, right? Like we know that one. In this world you will have trouble. The world will oppress you. The the world will, will persecute you. You'll have trouble. You will have distress. You will have suffering. You will have affliction. The world's going to fight against you. There will be, like, like, let's, let's get practical here. Like, you're going to get your heart broken in this world. You're going to have dreams that are shattered. Things that we proclaim. There are things that we proclaim to one another and about one another. We say we are going to be in this forever and they are going to fall apart. There are buildings and things that we're going to work with with all of our might, all of our best effort to build them as strong as they can be. And one day they're just going to fall down. You have to wonder with each successive king, if the people of God thought, maybe this will be the king who will let us go home, right? Maybe this will be the king who will, who will turn and point, and point the people to the way of the Lord, but, but each one just fails more spectacularly than the next. Like They all fall short, and the picture in the first part of the chapter makes it clear that this is the way of sinful, broken humanity. Yes, in this world, you will have tribulation, but what does Jesus say, right? Like That's not the end of that verse. I mean, if we just leave it at, in the world, you will have tribulation, we're only telling half the story. I mean, it's true, right? It's true, but it's incomplete. And the first half of, the first part of Daniel 7, it isn't pretty, right? It's the bad news. It's the bad news that the world is full of beasts, that it's full of monsters. I wrongly attributed a quote last week to G.K. Chesterton. It wasn't him, but none of y'all knew it, so what do you care? Whatever. I try not to do that, but I did. It was actually Carl Bart who said that, but I got another G.K. Chesterton one for you. He was asked, why do we need fairy tales? And he said, children don't need fairy tales to know that monsters are real. They already know that. Everyone knows that. We tell fairy tales to convince children that the monsters can be defeated. Well, this isn't a fairy tale. And so if you're looking for a story to tell your kids one day about how evil can be overcome, you come right here to Daniel 7. Come right here to Daniel 7. Because the, good, because the news isn't just that the world's broken. Paul says in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And listen, no, I've never personally given birth to a child. But I've been in the room a few times. So we kind of know the pains of childbirth, not a comfort thing. All right? To all you pregnant mamas, we love you. We're praying for you. It's going to be beautiful. Epidurals are common grace. All right? He continues by saying this, and not only creation, so not just the out there. Like we are, we, we are prone in the church to look at out there as like an alien world. That place out there is dark. That place out there is sinful. No, he says this, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, the Bible understands that the sadness you experience, the sadness you feel, the sadness you're walking in even right now, it understands that it's real. God sees us in that. He, he sees you in that loss. 
He sees you in that grief. He sees you in that fear. He sees you in that shame. He sees you in that guilt. He sees you in the, in the moments that you don't want to be seen, like the moments you don't want to talk about with your friends, the moments you don't share with your community group, the one that your wife's like, hey, hey, tell them. And you're like, nah, nah, they're not ready for that. He sees you in that. He knows all about that. Listen, the one, one of the best things that we can do is to be honest with each other. Like here, here it is. There is no love in a lie. I'm just going to tell you that. And so I want to be honest. God sees you. He sees me. He sees us in our trespasses. He sees us in our sin. And the best thing that I can do is to tell you that you are exposed before the face of God. You have never been hidden. You've always been exposed. He sees us chasing after the things that want to kill us. It's like our, we have a pathetic little dachshund. I mean, she's cool, whatever. It's our dog. We love her. Um, and every single day, and it's like every day, the Amazon van comes down the driveway, right? Because we live in that world now. And so we're, it's literally my second best friend is the Amazon driver. Um, he comes down our stupid dog every single time, runs after the van. And then, because they want to murder animals, they give her a treat when it's all said and done. You know, like, yeah, come on, run after the van. And we're like standing on the porch going, Roxy, stop! You know, don't go out of there. Logan's chasing her down. I'm like, now I got a dog and a kid running at the van. This is like, and so like this is... I can't help but think this is how God sees us when we chase after our sin. It's like my pathetic dachshund running across the yard chasing the van. Not knowing all the while that it's going to crush us. I fully expect that one day that's how it all ends for little Roxy. That was too far. But we're trying to come to terms with that as a family. At the end of the day, you can go home, you can tell your people, tell your people at work tomorrow that my pastor said I'm like a wiener dog. <laughs> oh man, it's hard to recover from that. Here, this is how God is with us though. He sees us. He sees us in our stupidity chasing after the things of the world that want to kill us. He sees us in all of that. And rather than standing on the porch and yelling at us, he came and he took the Amazon van in our place. He came and became this. I don't think Paul would like that. <laughs> Having said that out loud, I think if the Apostle Paul was checking in on our live stream this week, he's like, nah, just go cross. Just go cross there, not Amazon van. Now he came and took the cross in our place. He came and became sadness for us. Okay, it's God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Right? He made us alive together with Christ. It's him who knew no sin, becoming sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the second half of the story. That's the good news. We call it the gospel. It's what we see in verses 13 and 14. It's one like a son of man, that's Jesus, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I heard a story this week about um, Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, he's the author of Treasure Island, and the story comes from his childhood. And like, evidently, he was sort of a feeble child growing up in, in Scotland, and, and this was before there were electric streetlights, and so there would be people who at night, this was their job, they would go around and light the street lamps. And the story goes that one night as the men were going down the road and they were climbing up their ladders and lighting those lamps, um, 
he was captivated by. He's like watching from his bedroom window and he sees this happening and he's like, man, look at that. And his parents are calling him, you know, they're like, come on, man, time to come to dinner. And he's just fixated on him to the point where his parents are like, bro, Robert, I actually think this is probably where, they're like, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, can't you just hear him saying that? You come down here right now. And uh, they said, what are you doing? And I love this quote. He, he said, mom, I'm watching this man punch holes in the darkness. Mom, I'm watching this man punch holes in the darkness. You see, that's what the Son of Man does. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he has punched a hole in the darkness. And if you're in him, here's the other piece of this. If you're in him, if you have trusted and And this resurrected Jesus, the one we celebrated last week, the one we celebrate this week, if you've trusted in him, this one who came to take your sin upon himself at the cross, that's the gospel, to die the death that you justly deserve for your sin, for your allegiance to the little horn. If you have repented and trusted in him for your eternal life, you are called now to be a great Jesus-glorifying street lamp in this world. Jesus says of you in Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are the light of the world. That's not just our calling, that's also our commission from our king. That's our calling and our commission as his people, as his new creation, sons and daughters, is to fight the good fight, right? It's to finish the race, it's to keep the faith. It's to in him punch holes in the darkness. It's to know that we are not alone in this, that, we, that he is never going to leave us, that he's never going to fail us, that he's never going to forsake us. And here's the promise. I know you're in the midst of storms. Like, I know that. I know you, you brought storm in here with you this morning, in your heart, maybe in your mind. Here's his promise to you, that he meets you in that, and he's going to bring you all the way home. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of us are still dancing with the darkness. The call of Christ is to punch a hole in it. Or at least to see where he's already done it for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you you don't leave us. That you see us as we really are. You see me exposed before you in my fear, in my doubt, in my sin, in the baggage that I refuse to let go of. That I keep chasing after. You see us in that and you don't say forget that one. You come running after us. You stand between us and judgment. You take it on yourself at the cross. Father, to help, help us to walk in light of that this week. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and respond in singing with us?